In April 2016, Holocaust expert and Auschwitz guide Pavel Sawitsky took Kevin Reynolds on a day-long tour through the biggest Nazi industrial killing factory, the murder camps of Auschwitz and Auschwitz II, Birkenau. This is Auschwitz, an echo trapped forever. Lost people of Treblinka and Pompeii, save us, save us, they seem to say, let the God not abandon us, who have come so far in darkness and in pain. Das Gepäck abstellen, nachher kommen sie wieder zusammen. April is the cruelest month. This is a room where you can see people's hope. Breeding lilacs out of the dead land. Since we're looking at thousands and thousands of different kitchenware items. We too had our lives to live. You with your light meter and relaxed itinerary, let not our naive labours have been in vain. Uh, you can see jars, you can see kittles, you can see uh, bowls, you can see pans, frying pans, all kinds of things that people brought with them believing that this is resettlement. We stopped in the colonnade and went on in sunlight into the Hofgarten and drank coffee and talked for an hour. Bin gar keine Russin. Auschwitz był największym niemieckim nazistowskim obozem koncentracyjnym i zagłady. W latach 1940-1945 naziści... Nie wierzę. Nie wierzę, nie rozumiem. Auschwitz was the largest Nazi German concentration camp and death camp. Uh, in the years 1940-1945, the Nazis deported at least 1.3 million people to Auschwitz. 1.1 million Jews. Uh, yes, please wait, okay? 140-150,000 non-Jewish Poles, 23,000 Sinti and Roma, 15,000 Soviet prisoners of war, and 25,000 prisoners from other ethnic groups. 1.1 million of these people died in Auschwitz. Approximately 90% of them were Jews. The SS murdered the majority of them in the gas chambers. In 2016, Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf fell out of copyright. A scholarly annotated version was published in January 2016. The first print run sold out immediately. Within 12 months, Mein Kampf has been reprinted six times and has sold over 85,000 copies. Please go to the security gate, I open for you. Please go with me. Security, please come in with me. We have got information about you. Uh, okay. Okay, this will be the day. Do you have any sleep? I I'm entering Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial Museum in Uschwim, Poland. I've arranged to meet Pavel Savitsky. He works as a guide in Auschwitz. I got the train. Where did you come from on this train? Prague. Prague. Why didn't you fly to Poland? 
I could have flown to Krakow and taken a bus. I thought that a solitary act of pilgrimage, travelling alone by train at night to bear witness, would infuse the experience with a sense of empathy and the dignity and decorum such a visit demands. So we're standing right now in front of the main entrance to the camp. And this is one of the icons that uh, people remember, that people know. The gate with the very famous inscription, Arbeit macht frei, work makes one free. Very cynical if you think about the meaning, because you have survivors and they say that when they arrived here, they had no idea where they were. And when they looked at the gate and the sign, work makes one free, they felt some hope that... uh, that it is some kind of a slave labor camp and they'll be able to, to work here and possibly leave this place. But after hours, after literally after hours, they understood that this is a complete lie, this is cynicism, that people do not leave this place because they work well, that this is a concentration camp, place of terror, place of dehumanization and a place of death. And, uh, well, you can also notice one detail when you look at the gate, that the letter B in the word Arbeit is upside down. And there are stories linked with this letter B, that this is uh, the first sign of resistance in a way. And survivors talk about this B. And for them, this seemingly insignificant detail of the camp architecture gave them some hope. Even with this little thing, this could keep them human beings. Because when you think of the concentration camp, on one hand you have dehumanization, conditions of life, food, work conditions, terror system, punishments. Everything was supposed to dehumanize uh, people. But on the other hand, we have people, prisoners, who try everything to stay human beings here. So on the opposite side from the former SS hospital, you can see the grey building covered with earth and on the other side of the building there's the chimney. Before the war, in the Polish army barracks, this was the munition storage room. When the SS turned turned it into a concentration camp, they turned it into a morgue. And next to the morgue they built a crematorium. The first crematorium was here already in August 1940. It had one oven, later it had the second one and the third one finally. And uh, when in September 1941 Cyclone B was tested in Block 11 and the SS learned that it works but they must find a different place to kill people, they decided to build the first gas chamber in the camp's morgue. So in autumn 1941 they fenced the the whole morgue and crematorium uh, off so that prisoners and also SS men and civilians who were nearby couldn't see what was going on. And this is where they start murdering people. They make holes in the ceiling in the morgue and this is how Cyclone B could be dropped inside. People come into the yard, they undressed on the little yard in front of the entrance. From the roof of the gas chamber, SS spoke to them, promising them jobs and promising them disinfection, telling them that soup is being cooked for them, asking them about professions. And then people calmed down because they obviously didn't know what was going on and they entered the room and this is where they were killed. And because this building was very close to the camp and very close to the SS buildings, the SS wanted to avoid any shouts being heard from the outside. So when people were murdered here, they run two trucks that drove around the building to create loud noise, to cover the noises of people who for a few minutes shouted in the gas chambers. And this is why in spring 1942, they decide to move the killing process from here, from Auschwitz I, 
because it was too close to the to the witnesses, they moved it to the forest in Birkenau, and they built the whole extermination center um, over there. At first, with two farmhouses turned into gas chambers, and finally in spring 1943, building four gas chambers and crematories, industrial-like factories, designed for this purpose. But this is where. There are these two places in Auschwitz, one, Block 11, and the first gas chamber, where the extermination starts. There have been deaths, the pale flesh flaking into the earth that nourished it, and nightmares born of these and the grim dominion of stale air and rank moisture. Those nearest the door grow strong, elbow room, elbow room. We are entering a dark room, which is... 20 meters long and on the left hand side you have the display along the whole room with the human hair. The hair which was cut from the heads of people murdered in gas chambers and this hair after the war was also examined and traces of hydrogen cyanide was found on this hair so we know that uh, it belonged to the murdered people. And then there are two tons of hair here, almost 2,000 kilograms. So you can estimate that they could belong to approximately even 40,000 people. Um, so symbolically speaking here, you're looking at the small town which was murdered here in this camp. And uh, we decided to display the hair because they are one of the most important evidence of the crime which took place here. But because we still want to keep the dignity of the people we ask visitors, first of all, not to take pictures here. We keep the room dark, not only not to let sunlight in, but also to create this, uh, this atmosphere that people come to a very important place where they should be quiet, where they should simply look and reflect. Uh, but also hair is the only item in the whole memorial today which we do not conserve. We decided that out of, again, out of dignity, out of respect, we do not consider this human hair as another artifact of the museum. We let them disintegrate naturally, and there will be a time in the future, although we don't know when, uh, that people will come here and they will not be able to see this important um, evidence of the murder of people. So the camp, of course, was surrounded by barbed wire fence lines. And we can see the barbed wire. We can see double fence line of Auschwitz I, which protected the camp. Of course, it didn't allow prisoners to escape. But it is also the, uh, the source of very tragic stories, since uh, from the other side you can see that there are, first of all, two main lines of uh, fences. But you can see a smaller, shortened line five meters away from here. Um, so in front of the uh, inside uh, fence line. Prisoners were not allowed to cross that line at all. If they crossed that line, the guards who were on the watchtowers around the camp or the guards who were passing by were authorized to shoot the prisoner without any warning. So uh, we know from testimonies that sometimes it was a way to kill a prisoner, to murder a prisoner. An SS man, a guard, took something that belonged to a prisoner, a tool, a hat, anything, threw it on the other side and gave the direct order to to bring it back. And the prisoner didn't really have a choice. It was like a trap because he either didn't listen to the direct order and could be punished or killed or simply followed the orders and then the guards made the shot. But it was also uh, a way to commit suicide in the camp. Those prisoners who couldn't cope, if they didn't have enough strength to 
harm themselves because it's not always so easy even if you're desperate uh, they had an easier way to cross that line approach the fence lines I wait to the, for the guard to react and there is another um, very tragic thing uh, happening after those deaths because every prisoner every registered prisoners who was killed in the camp had to have a death certificate issued by the camp administration in those documents you'll find in the cases of prisoners who were either shot at the fences or those who committed suicide, that prisoners were shot during an escape attempt. And the guard who did it sometimes received some kind of a bonus or a vacation. And you can see that there is a forgery also taking place from the perpetrators uh, lying about the causes of death of prisoners. So we are standing in a room where you can actually see hope that people had because we're standing in front of this play where you can see different types of kitchenware and there are thousands of items and you can see jars and you can see bowls and you can see kettles and you can see different kinds of lamps. You can see normal cups, you can see plates, everything that the people brought with them uh, to start normal kitchen. You can see also colors different colors. And these colors are important because they also tell about the identity of people who own these items. But you can see three main colors visible. You can see white, you can see blue, and you can see red all around. And this is because Jewish kitchen must be kosher. And at that time to mark the dishes which were for different kinds of food, meat, uh, diary and parf, were marked with different colors. So we can also see that uh, in most cases the people who owned these items were Jews. And the hope is very clear because when you believe that you are just changing your place of living, when you believe in resettlement, and this is the story that the German Nazis gave to people, um, you take things like that with you. When you move you want to have a new kitchen because a kitchen is a very important place in every household. You meet their family, you talk, you gossip, you eat, you rest. Uh, so we can see that people had hope for some continuation. And this hope was the weapon that Germans used against them. Um, and this is what helped them to take people as calm as possible, but also as quickly as possible, from the selection point to the gas chambers. And in the same room, there is one of the most painful display because it shows uh, items which belong to little children. There are clothes here, there are hats, you'll find a sock, you'll find also a broken doll. The, the doll is broken, so the head is, uh, was smashed and you can see the fragments of, of the cheek and you can see one eye and one ear and you can see the hair. But the whole doll is, is, is dressed with a nice checked uh, skirt and a brown sweater. And there's also a bow tie and, and, uh, and a belt. And you can see that the foot also were damaged probably because of the storing. So this, this was someone's favorite doll. And uh, the, the, probably it was simply found in the undressing room of the gas chamber. The child was sent to, to, to death and somehow the doll survive and still testify uh, about, the, about the fate of this anonymous child that owned the doll. The rest 
dim in a twilight of crumbling utensils and broken pitchers, groaning for their deliverance, have been so long expectant that there is left only the posture. Uh, we're standing right at the entrance gate, but we are already inside the, the camp compound. And there was a little square in front of the, uh, the, the side of the kitchen where the camp orchestra played. And again, the story of the orchestra and story of music in a concentration camp is the story of dehumanization. Because prisoners were playing music here and uh, they were playing in the morning and in the evening because columns of prisoners had to march out in the morning to work and then they had to come back in the evening to the camp to sleep. And the orchestra was giving them rhythm to march. And this is how counting was easier for the SS guards. And we have testimonies that the orchestra rehearsed different kinds of marches to find this perfect rhythm. And we have survivors saying that music in this place was raped that they hated hearing the orchestra playing because of what happened here, especially in the evening. In the evening, all prisoners had to come back to the camp, those who were alive, but also those who died during the day of work. Their corpses had to be brought by their colleagues to the camp, and their corpses were counted and on the Rokal Square. Only then the, the corpses could be transferred to the crematorium and burned. And they were exhausted after the whole day of terrible work. They were carrying the corpses of people on their backs. They, they, they had to walk in this mud and on these very uncomfortable stones of these roads. And still they had to follow the rhythm. If they didn't do it, they were punished by the guards. And you, you have this paradoxical combination. On one hand, orchestra playing music in this place, and then the columns of prisoners entering the camp with this very tragic uh, situation. But you have also the other side of the coin. Because you'll also find survivors who say, when we could listen to music in this inhuman place, we could forget for a moment. We could close our eyes and listen to music. We could stay human uh, here in this inhuman place. Because on one hand, you study the story of dehumanization, but then when you go through survivors' accounts, you can see the, the opposite. You can see the attempts of people to stay human beings here. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. Frisch weht der Wind, der Heimat zu. Mein Irish Kind, wo weilest du? Nach dem Abort vor dem Hessen, Hände waschen nicht vergessen. Inside the barracks there are two corridors. Uh, crossing it, and on both sides of these two corridors you have um, three level bunk beds. So there are four um, lines of beds in each of these barracks. Um, the bottom level, the middle level, and the top level. The level, the bottom level was always the worst because it was just soil. So when it rained, it turned into mud. So prisoners who slept in the bottom slept in darkness, but also slept in mud. And then the upper layers were better. Um, here the, uh, the, the highest is high enough so that people in the middle could sit, but in most cases they were too low. So the only place you could sit up was the top bunk. And then the crowd was uh, terrible because on one level, which is three meters long, there were between three and seven people sleeping. So when there were five or six or seven, these people had to sleep on sites. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to fit in. If one wanted to change the site, all of them had to change the site. 
people didn't wash properly because there were no proper washrooms in Birkenau. There were problems with running water. People had to use puddle water, contaminated water. Sometimes prisoners said that the only water they could wash themselves with was their morning bowl of camp coffee, which were just some herbs that were boiled. And uh, and this was a huge sacrifice, not to drink your morning hot fluid, because in in winter, for example, this was important, it was hot, but to save some, to wash your face, to wash your hand, to feel a human being. And many survivors say, when you stop looking after yourself, when you stop caring how you look, when you stop caring that your face should be washed, where you didn't want to find a piece of glass to shave yourself, or simply you didn't look after how everything looked like, you gave up very quickly. Uh, then, of course, there's the smell of unwashed bodies, smelled of uh, excrements because many prisoners suffered from hunger diarrhea. They, many of them, because of dirt, had, had different skin diseases. Many of them suffered from different contagious diseases. And before they were taken to the camp infirmary and they were isolated, they could be here with other prisoners. We're talking about lice, bedbugs, um, flies, rats all around the place. We're talking about noise. We're standing in the quiet barracks. But when you imagine uh, seven, 8,000 people in here, the noise had to be unbearable. No intimacy at all, always surrounded by other people. And then it was repeating day after day, night after night, that you had to stand on your, on your bunk bed, uh, fighting against all these other people for survival. Because, of course, when you were alone in the camp, you wouldn't be able to survive. A single person was powerless. You had to have few friends. And, uh, for example, your universe was your bank. Three, four people that you know and that you trusted and that could be with you and they help each other. But then people around them weren't their friends. They were their competition for survival. Sometimes a person died on one bank and these people didn't want to have another person coming here from the bottom because it would simply take a bit more space from them. However, when we uh, read different stories of survivors' choices, we should refrain ourselves from judging because we will never be able to understand their motivations, will never be able to understand their situation because none of us, none of us ever experience such a terrible, extreme situation where every choice we make can decide about life and about our death. I could not speak, and my eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead, and I knew nothing. Looking into the heart of light, the silence. The topography of Auschwitz uh, is very different in different seasons, of course. And you will have different atmosphere of this place, because right now it's, uh, it's spring. But you can see green trees, you can see green grass, you can hear, hear birds singing. But then if you come in winter, the atmosphere of this place is different. The mud is much deeper. Uh, the colors are not here. So uh, sometimes visit visitors say that maybe it is better to come here in this more gray, more depressing weather. But this is also this uh, tragic history of Auschwitz, that when it was sunny, when it was warm, when uh, birds were singing, people were also murdered. The gas chambers still functioned. And it, it hits you even more when you understand that. 
that it all happened at any kind of weather, at any kind of, uh, you know, more beautiful, less beautiful day, the fun factory desk kept running. Again, a long 20 meters room along the wall, um, hundreds of suitcases piled up. And the most uh, important thing here are the names, because the most of these suitcases are, were signed by the victims. And this was the element of deception. They were told, sign your luggage, you'll go to take a shower, you'll be taken to your new houses, to your new homes, and we have to deliver your luggage back. We don't want to lose any of your property. So this is also a sign of this promise, false promise given to people. And you can see names, Zdenka Fanz. You have Francisca Fry, born on 15th of December, 82. You have Benjamin Lazarus, Israel, Wien, so Vienna, Zegestrasse Zege 8. And the Israel ending is part of the Nuremberg law. Jewish people had to add another official name to their normal name. With men, it was Israel. With women, it, it was Sarah. So you probably will be able to find some other uh, names like that on the suitcases. You have Clara Sarah Fochtmann, and here you have Sarah. So it means a Jewish woman from Vienna, uh, from Tandl marking 17, apartment 3. You have Dohan Eva born on 19th of December 1909, and you can see here that she was a nurse. You have the word flaggerine. So you can see names, you can see birthdates, you can see transport numbers, you can see um, sometimes occupation, different personal information. And for us, these suitcases are extremely important because these information are here. Germans destroyed most of the original documents, also destroyed names of people who were deported here. But on some of the items, not only suitcases, but also other individual items, we can still find uh, traces of individuality. So we're standing in front of block number 24, and block number 24 had different functions. It was a normal prisoner's block. And from summer 1943, uh, on the first floor of this building, a brothel was created. And we see also some kind of motivation system built uh, inside the concentration camps, and brothels was part of it. Which means that from summer 1943, a prisoner, a non-Jewish prisoner, could get a, a bonus card for having some extra performance, and he would go to the brothel. And then this story is, of course, very complicated because... There are women there. Some of them were forced to work there. But some of them volunteered because this was a pattern of survival. The women who were in the brothel received better food, had access to hygienic installations, which wasn't the story of many prisoners. And for them, it was a chance of survival. And then for prisoners, sometimes we know that we, we have, for example, German criminals who had been in concentration camps for many years and they used it. But sometimes we have testimonies that a Polish prisoner gets a, a card to a brothel and he just sits down because he can talk to a person, because he, he can look at the woman and talk to her. He, he, they didn't have enough strength to have any sexual activity, but we can see that sometimes for these prisoners, Prisoners being alone with another person and talking about their feelings was, again, an attempt of staying human. We're standing in, the, in a long, 20 meters long room, and we're, there's a corridor in the middle, but on both sides of the room there are display cases with shoes. So surrounding us there are approximately 80,000 of shoes. And when you look at them, you can see, you can see, of course, the piles going up to the ceiling, but you can see different kinds of shoes. 
You can see men's shoes, you can see women's shoes, you can see slippers. You will be able to find high heel ladies' ballroom shoes made of blue leather. You will find uh, workers' shoes. And again, you can see shoes that belong to rich people, that belong to poor people, that belong to any individuals. Because this is again the totality of extermination. When the administration definition of a Jew was created in Nazi Germany, there was no escape. They divided humanity into four kinds of people. Jews, uh, half-Jews first grade, half-Jews second grade, and non-Jews. And at a certain point during the Second World War, in the German-occupied Europe, being a Jew or a mixed Jew was a death sentence. And they didn't care who you were as a person, if you were poor or, uh, or rich, if you were uh, smart or stupid, if you were beautiful or ugly. All that mattered was this definition, and people were sent to their extermination. And you can see it here, because you... When you look at these shoes, you can see the whole society. You can see all kinds of people. Jews are a race that must be totally exterminated. Hans Frank, 1944, Governor-General in Nazi-occupied Poland. They're begging us, you see, in their wordless way, to do something, to speak on their behalf, or at least not to close the door again. Szacunkowa liczba Żydów deportowanych do KL Auschwitz. Estimated number of Jews deported to Auschwitz. 430 tysięcy z Węgier, 430,000 from Hungary. 300 tysięcy z Polski, 300,000 from Poland. 69 tysięcy z Francji. We must free the German nation of Poles, Russians, Jews and Gypsies. Otto Tirak, Minister of Justice of the Third Reich. Francji, 69,000 from France, 60,000 from the Netherlands, 55,000 from Greece, 46,000 from the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, 27,000 from Slovakia, 25,000 from Belgium, 23,000 from Austria and Germany, 10,000 from Yugoslavia, 7,500 from Italy, 690 from Norway. So we are looking at the factory of death with two underground rooms, long undressing room on the left-hand side where people entered and they believed that this is just a shower undressing room. This is the story that they were told by the perpetrators. They were told to remember the number of the hook where they put their clothes. They were given uh, sometimes towel and soap for the shower. They were told to tie their shoes together, not to lose them after the shower, to, to be able to find them. And then people were moved to another room. And in here we can see another underground uh, room, and this is the gas chamber. There were artificial shower heads on the ceiling because deception lasted until the very last moment, and people entered. Around 2,000 people could be killed here at the time. The door were locked, and that was the, the trap closing. And then through holes in the ceiling... Um, Cyclone B pallets were thrown inside the chamber and hydrogen cyanide started killing people and the process lasted, well, 20-30 minutes um, and then the Zonderkommando started their work cleaning the, the gas chamber. And the story of the Zonderkommando is probably the darkest chapter of the history of Auschwitz because we can see a group of prisoners who are forced by the SS to work in gas chambers and crematorias. 
they had to do the dirty work. They had to clean the gas chambers. They had to burn the corpses. And they also didn't see any hope for themselves. They knew that the SS will want to kill them because they know the secret of extermination. Um, first of all, search the corpses inside and outside for any valuables. They had to check mouths for gold teeth. They had to cut hair. And only then they burned the corpses, either in one of those huge industrial ovens that were built here, but sometimes the number of corpses was too big and they had to use open-air burning pits. And then the ash of uh, murdered people was uh, spread into fields, was dumped in ponds, in rivers. Uh, the perpetrators didn't really want the ash to be found because uh, measuring the amount of ash, you could try to estimate the number of people killed. And uh, the, the SS didn't really want to leave any traces. But of course, they left traces because we have blueprints of the crematorium, we have documents, we have photographs, we have the ruins of the site, and we can see how the industrial murder was organized. So, of course, here you can see approximately 3,000 pairs of glasses. Um, so the scale is enormous. But on the other hand, it's also very important to remember that each pile is in our individual objects. That one glass here is one person, is someone who lived his or her life, had dreams, but also problems, but lived everyday normal life as we are until someone decided that these people will be victimized and they will brought to the camp to be murdered. What does it mean that people were murdered here in, uh, in the industrial way? However we look at that and however we look at the story of the Holocaust, we'll always find these points where we have bystanders and we have evil taking place somewhere next to them. And uh, the story of uh, the war tells us that there were very few people who somehow collaborated with the system, with the evil. There were very few people who decided to do something good, to try to save people, try to help people. But the majority of people did nothing. They were bystanders and they decided to be, to be, to stay bystanders. And sadly, when we analyze what happened after the war, we see a very similar pattern. It's not about judging. Because sometimes being a bystander or is, is the way of keeping you safe. You don't want to risk your life. You don't want to risk the life of your family. Sometimes being a, an upstander means uh, a risky situation. However, we hope that people when they come here and when they hear the story of this place and they also hear how people in the camp try to help each other in these very difficult circumstances, when they also learn about the stories of local people who lived nearby um, outside the camp interest zone, but very close to the camp, to the fields where prisoners worked, they can learn that they decided to help, to smuggle food into the camp area, to smuggle letters, to help in escapes. It involved bribery because the SS guards had to be bribed and they had to be given alcohol and some food. Some of them decided to do something because they witnessed evil happening close to them. They didn't try to attack the SS men and liberate prisoners, but they could cook soup or they could bake bread. They could smuggle a message from a person to a person. But when you listen to survivors, you'll find out that for them, it was everything. For them, it was not just a piece of bread or a bowl of soup, but this was a message that there is someone else outside the camp thinking about them. So there's this human bond created. All of us from time to time, 
must ask ourselves question what do we do with our own responsibility what happens when we at different points of our life witness situations when we are bystanders and evil is taking place somewhere else and maybe a visit here will cause the situation that people will start thinking maybe i can do something maybe i can just contribute a little to the world around me but the responsibility can be can be very different acts because it can be being a volunteer it can be helping your uh, colleague in school when he has problems in get in learning the, the lessons there are many situations in in the world where you can simply do something for another human being it's already a value and if the visit through this place will also trigger people to think about that it will be our huge success and we see that successes from time to time and this is why we always start from remembrance and they if possible build awareness and on this awareness uh, build responsibility pierwsze na śmierć iść miały dzieci osierodzone małe dzieci The first to perish were the children, abandoned orphans, the world's best, the bleak's earth's brightest. These children from the orphanages might have been our comfort. From these sad, mute, bleak faces, our new dawn might have risen. Jakże mam śpiewać? Świat cały obrócił mi się w pustynie. Jak grać mam, kiedy daremnie ręka podźwignąć się sili? How can I sing? My world is laid waste. How can I play with wrung hands? Where are my dead? Oh God, I seek them in every dunghill, in every heap of ashes. Oh, tell me where you are. Spójrz, stoją wszyscy, gdzie tylko ziemia się wokół rozściela. Look, look, they all stand around me, endless throngs. A shudder goes through me. All of them look with Benzion's and Yomke's sorrowful eyes. All of them look with the sad eyes of my murdered wife. Muszę cię twoim wołać imieniem, Hanewe, choćby wymawiać imię. I love calling your name. I love to say it, Hanale. Since they took you away with my people, I fancy chatting with you. You look at me sweetly with your bright eyes, a gentle, sad smile on your lips. I love calling you in my loneliness. Asking you in my solitude, do you remember? Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. They're begging us, you see, in their wordless way, to do something, to speak on their behalf, or at least not to close the door again. Lost people of Treblinka and Pompeii, save us, save us, they seem to say, let the God not abandon us, who have come so far in darkness and in pain. We too had our lives to live. You with your light meter and relaxed itinerary. Let not our naive labors have been in vain. That was Auschwitz, an echo trapped forever, a program recorded in April 2016. We heard Holocaust expert Pavel Sawitsky take Kevin Reynolds on a day-long tour through the biggest Nazi industrial killing factory, the murder camps of Auschwitz and Auschwitz II, Birkenau. A disused shed in County Wexford was written and read by Derek Mahan.
and The Wasteland, Part 1, The Burial Ground, was written and read by T.S. Eliot. The music was Iconography by Max Richter. Sound supervision was by Richard McCulloch and Auschwitz, An Echo Trapped Forever, was recorded and produced by Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.